together. All right, Father, we begin this new year with great thanksgiving in our hearts. We thank you for bringing us safely through another summer and giving us this privileged opportunity to meet here this morning and separate ourselves from from all the affairs of life, all that's going on in our individual lives and all of our responsibilities and to to fix our attention on your word and on you. Father, we long for the Son of God to be honored, to be lifted up by all that we discuss here this morning and all that we read and pray about and think about and consider together today. Exalt him, Father, by giving to us the fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to magnify Christ in our sight and in our hearing and to be able to respond to him as we should. We ask that we would turn our hearts and our affection so that we are filled, just literally filled with a knowledge of him, that we would know what it is to enter into that experience of being illuminated by your spirit so that the things of Christ are genuine and they are real to us and we feed on them. Grant that nothing in this hour would hinder that work for which we now pray and that no spirit here among us would would so grieve your spirit that we would lose any blessing that you have for us this morning. We ask that this time would be completely, entirely, fully sanctified, that it would be set apart for your will to be accomplished. And may we now worship you together in spirit and in truth. For we pray... In Jesus' name, amen. John 17. John 17 serves as a window into the mind and the heart and the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the greatest individual to ever have lived. Even those who do not know him for who he really is, who is he? The eternal son of God. Even those who don't know him, are constrained to admit that no other figure in history has exercised such an influence on humanity. And that truth alone should be sufficient cause for a curiosity about the inner nature of such a person. In John 17, we find the Lord Jesus pouring out his heart in prayer to his father, his heavenly father. And nowhere, if you think about it, nowhere do we really find out about a person's heart, their genuine inner being, than when we hear him or her pray out loud in genuine, sincere, heartfelt prayer. So we get an insight into the heart and into the motives, the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest person to ever live because of the fact that he's God. And this is also, think about this, this is his consummate prayer. What does that mean? This is really basically his last prayer. Now he's going to speak a prayer in Gethsemane, but that's for himself. This is his last prayer to and for his followers on the behalf of his followers. And that also makes it very significant. Something else that makes John 17 unique is that this is the lengthiest prayer, recorded prayer, that we have between members of the triune Godhead. 
How'd you like to hear a conversation between God the Father and God the Son? Well, that's exactly what we have in John 17. And this is the lengthiest one we have in Scripture. You know, it was interesting to me to go back and look through Scripture and find out, sure enough, we have some communication between God the Father, God the Son, but not many. For example, back in Genesis 1.26, what do they say? Let us make man in our image. That's God talking to himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we have a few other passages, but they're short. This is the lengthiest one we have that gives us, it's an entire chapter that gives us Trinitarian intercommunication. So no wonder many have said over the centuries, and I have a lot of quotes in your books about what people have said, famous men of God have said about this prayer, but no wonder when we come to John 17, so many have said that we do enter onto holy ground. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, for one, said that, quote, there is a sense in which one preaches John 17 with fear and trembling lest one may in any way detract from its greatness and from its value. So we come to this prayer with fear and trembling. I don't want to detract from the, the truth of the prayer at all, the magnitude of the prayer. Dr. Warren, Warren Wearsby, you've all heard of him probably. Uh, he's still alive today, I think, Bible expositor, and he's the author of the famous B series of commentators, uh, commentaries. He said this, quote, John 17 is certainly the holy of holies of the gospel record, and we must approach this chapter in a spirit of humility and worship to think that we are privileged to listen in as God the Son converses with God the Father just as he is about to give his life a ransom. For sinners, end of quote. So this is a special chapter which we approach. And I think we would all admit there is no doubt whatsoever that the gospel accounts tell us that the Lord was a man of prayer. Was he not? There are many occasions in the gospels that describe him spending time in prayer. And there are a few of those occasions when we hear some of the words of his prayer. But as I said, they're not very long. This is only the ninth recorded prayer that we come to in our long life of Christ study. I've lost track. I know we're in book seven, but this is like year 10 at least in our life of Christ study. And this is the only, this is the ninth recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that he wasn't a man of prayer. But there weren't many prayers he prayed that we know of, at least not recorded, um, that, were, that were heard by the disciples. A lot of times they would probably spend the night out under the sun, his stars and they would get up in the morning and see that where he slept it was empty. Because what would he do? He'd get up long before the sun would rise and he would spend, sometimes we know that he even spent the night in prayer. But we don't know what he prayed. Because it's just not recorded. Um, so we do know he was a man of prayer. But what we, what we do have here in John 17 is the only occasion recorded in the Gospels in which our Lord prayed at any length a prayer that was heard in its entirety by his apostles. He purposely prayed this prayer out loud for their benefit. And for who else's benefit? Our benefit.
So what makes this unique, this prayer? Well, number one, it's the longest revelation of Christ's inner heart and motive. Number two, it's the longest inter-Trinitarian communication that we have recorded in the scripture. It's the longest recorded prayer ever heard by the apostles. And it is the last recorded prayer for his followers. So that makes it special, doesn't it? All right, what I want to do now is quickly review the setting for this prayer. What day is it? Not Monday, September 12th. What day is it in our study? It was actually early Thursday morning because when did the Jewish day begin? No, six, six o'clock at night. So we would say it's Wednesday night, but because their days started at 6 p.m., kind of weird, throws us off, doesn't it? But the Jewish days began at 6 p.m., so this is really the early hours of Thursday morning, according to the Jewish calendar. And it is the 14th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar, which means it's what day? The day of the Passover. You can go back and look in Leviticus. This is the day of the Passover. Therefore, it is the very day that Christ would die. Thursday of the Passion Week. If you missed my whole lesson on why we believe here in this study, and we're not dogmatic about it, but I did give reasons for why we believe the Lord was crucified on Thursday as opposed to the traditional Friday, because that literally he could be three days and three nights in the, in the um, belly of the earth in the tomb. And I gave you a whole bunch of reasons, but that lesson was back in book six if you want to get that. But we're going with the Thursday crucifixion, the 14th of Nisan. So it's literally a matter of hours before his arrest. The Lord and his men had gone earlier while it was still Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, before 6 p.m. They had gone into the city of Jerusalem from where? Where had they spent the night? Bethany, of course, where they always went back during the Passion Week to Bethany. And remember that night in Bethany was when Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary of Bethany, had washed the Lord's feet, actually his whole body, with her expensive spikenard perfume, which she, you know, just lavished on him. They got up the next morning, they walked into Jerusalem, and they went to a place called the Upper Room, which had been prepared for the Passover by Peter and, come on, John, very good, thank you. Why? why? Well, why? They had prepared it to celebrate the Passover supper. He had to eat the Passover before everybody else ate the Passover because he would be dead by the time everybody else ate the Passover. Now, a lot of things happened in that room, remember? Satan himself was present in that room, but only the Lord knew it. The dis- other disciples, di- I mean, the disciples didn't know it. Where was Satan? Like a helicopter. He was hovering over over Judas. But he was also about to sift all the disciples like wheat, including or beginning with their leader, Peter. The unclean spiritual atmosphere in that upper room was obvious as we began to look at everything that happened in that room that night. What was the first thing that we found out? happened immediately after they arrived in the upper room with the lord a quarrel began among the disciples over of all things 
who among them was the greatest. And probably what precipitated that quarrel was who gets to sit next to the Lord at the Passover supper. You know, seats of honor in his right and his left. Now, they've had this argument before, hadn't they? And they're at it again, and they're disputing among themselves. And we know Satan was delighted over that little argument. Well, um, he was delighted until the Lord himself stood up, girded himself with a towel, knelt down, and began to do what? Wash their feet one by one, 24 stinking feet, including Judas's. And he washed every one of their feet. Um, And that was truly a visual aid lesson on both humility and servanthood that his men, you know, would never, ever forget. They should have washed his feet, or somebody should have volunteered to wash everybody's feet when they came into the room, but they were all too proud, and they were all, you know, wanting to be next to him at the table, so no one had even washed his feet. Well, then during the course of eating the Passover supper, Jesus predicted, you remember this? A number of events, gives a lot of predictions on what's to come shortly, and those predictions were immensely distressing for his men to hear. He told them that he was soon to depart, and that where he was going, they couldn't follow him yet. They couldn't follow him. And then he told them that, it, that one of them, now he told them before somebody was going to betray him, but they never knew it was one of them. And then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And remember, that what did they all say? Lord, is it, is it I? Lord, is it I? Even Judas, hypocrite that he was, said, Master. He didn't call him Lord, but he said, Master, is it I? I read something this summer that kind of stuck with me. They all at least said, Lord, is it I? Do you know what the Pharisees would have said? Lord, is it him? Well, they wouldn't have said Lord to begin with, would they? <laughs> Must be him. That's what they would say. But at least the disciples said, is it I? The true disciples. So he told them one was going to betray him and that, in fact, every one of them was going to scatter from him that very night. And then the frosting on the cake, at least to the ears of Satan, came when proud Peter boasted and said, well, even though all of these might scatter, Lord, I would never, ever desert you. And then the Lord point blank told him what? Well, in fact, Peter, you're going to deny me. Worse than scattering from me, you're going to deny me three times before the next cock would crow. So you could cut the despair in the room with a knife. And it was then time for the Lord to rid himself of Satan's hovering presence. So Jesus dismissed Judas, who by this point in the time of the Passover, uh, Satan had succeeded in totally possessing when Judas took the sop that was offered by the Lord. When he took that sop, it was like the Lord's last gesture of reaching out in grace to Judas. And he just hypocritically took it, didn't he? And that is when we found out that Satan entered into Judas. Judas had no repentance whatsoever. So it was night. Remember how it said it was night for Judas? It was. It was night for him and his soul. You see, it was time for him to go because the Lord set the time for his own crucifixion. Since when, ladies? When was the time for his crucifixion set? In eternity past. And the arrest and the trials... And the scourging 
all needed to begin so that he would die when? Exactly on the 14th of Nisan, on the Passover day, and at what time? What time did the Lord give up his spirit? Exactly at 3 o'clock when it was time for the lambs to be slain. Interestingly, we discussed this last year, the Jews, when I say the Jews, I'm talking about the religious rulers. They uh, wanted desperately to kill Jesus. They had wanted to kill him for a long time, hadn't they? But the one day they all conspired together, the one day they absolutely would not kill him would be on the, on the Passover. Why? Well, because the multitudes liked Jesus, especially the, the, the multitudes that came from Galilee and other parts of, of uh, the diaspora. They liked Jesus. And if he, they had tried to kill him on the Passover, they were afraid of an uproar and that those people might actually turn on them and kill them instead. So the one day they said we won't kill him is the one day that they did kill him because uh, they weren't in charge of things. Now, they surely thought they were, didn't they? Like powerful men do think they're in charge of things, but they weren't in charge at all. Uh, They were merely fulfilling the plan of God by their own evil choices. Well, once Judas was gone and the atmosphere in the room was cleansed from the evil spirit and from the false disciple, Jesus could then institute what? The Lord's Supper. And in a beautiful transition, we spent three weeks on this, he transitioned the Passover Supper to the Lord's Supper. He took up the elements of the unleavened bread and the wine of the Passover Supper, and he spoke of them symbolically as his body, which was broken, soon to be broken, and his blood, which was very soon to be spilled for the sins of the world. That's all I'm going to say. We spent three weeks on that, but that's just our concise little synopsis of it. And then he began with the words of the final discourse, which we called the farewell discourse. This is his last sermon to his men. And he began that sermon with words of great comfort. How did he begin it? Look at John 14, 1. You all know this. Let not, let not your heart be troubled. Say that. Memorize that if you don't have it memorized. Very short. Say it to yourself often because in this world we're troubled a lot. But let not your heart be troubled. Why? You believe in God. You know, that's not what the whole Old Testament was about. Getting people to believe in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. That's what the whole New Testament is about believing in Christ. That's it. That's the whole Bible in a nutshell. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's how he began. Um, he, he was compassionate. He knew they needed comfort. And so he began speaking to his group of distressed, troubled, and immensely disheartened men with those wonderful word, words. You know, their bubble was about to burst, wasn't it? They were just absolutely devastated. Their great dream for the soon establishment of the kingdom of God on earth was turning into a nightmare. They must have been asking, how can all of these things be that he has just predicted? Uh, How can all these things be reconciled with his Messiahship? What about the promised kingdom? Yes, he's the Messiah, so why isn't he going to set up the kingdom? Why is he talking about dying and going away? What what is this going to mean for us? What's going to become of us? We have forsaken everything to follow him. And how, now he's going to leave us? 
You know, how can these things be? They were very perplexed, and you would have been too if you had been there that night. Well, so knowing their troubled thoughts, the gracious, ever-compassionate Lord, who can be touched with the feelings of our troubles and our infirmities, uh, reached out to them with tender words of comfort and peace. That's how he began the farewell discourse, with comfort. Um, And he gave them words that were going to help them out of their gloom and despair. Not yet, because they didn't get it. But when they reflected back on it, it it would bring them out of their gloom and focus them on their glorious future. Isn't that what we need to be focused on? Don't look at the gloom and doom of this world. Let's focus on our glorious future. Because if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have a glorious future ahead of you. I can't even begin to describe it. I, I meant I, E-I, I mean E-Y-E, but I can't begin to describe it to you either. So he did this, focused them on the future by beginning his farewell discourse with eight fantastic promises. He told them about God's grace in their lives because of him, because of Christ. He wanted them to understand that his departure was not something to mourn about, not something to be sad about. It was going to be far better for them that he did depart, right? That's what he told them. And while he was gone from them, what was he going to be doing? He's be preparing a special place for each and every one of them, an eternal dwelling place in his father's house. And he would come back and personally escort them there when everything was ready. And because of his departure, he would also be able to send the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, the great comforter who would be their indwelling comforter and teacher. And they would then have an astounding union with God the Father because of their spiritual position in Christ and in the Spirit and therefore in the Father. And they would be able to, because of the Spirit indwelling them, even accomplish greater works than Christ himself had accomplished while here on planet Earth. And then he promised that, the, that um, their prayers would be answered when prayed in accordance to his name. He promised them the Father's love. He promised them his own love. He promised them that he would manifest himself to them. He promised them the Spirit's guidance into all truth. That's what the Spirit is doing right now today. He's guiding us into all truth. And then also he promised them the Spirit's special assistance in remembering all that he had spoken to them. Everything he had said. How do you think those guys remembered every word of the John 17 high priestly prayer? Well, the only one that did was John. But how do you think he remembered every word? He didn't have a super great brain. He, the Holy Spirit recalled those words to his remembrance. That was a special promise to the apostles. And then the Lord also promised the supernatural peace that only Christ himself can give the believer. So, that was all chapter 14, and then it was time to leave the upper room. Jesus knew that Judas, who had left, remember, and gone to wherever the high priest's house was or whatever, and he was soon about, Judas was soon about to lead the Lord's greatest enemies, the Jews, to back to that upper room to arrest him. Jesus knew that because he's omnipotent God. And he still had two more chapters to give them of instructions and a prayer to pray for them. So he says what 
at the end of verse chapter 14, Arise, let us go hence. He didn't want Judas and the Jews to find him in the upper room, so that he got up and he headed on his way to where? Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew Judas would also... Now, if he wasn't in the upper room, Judas would say, Ah, oh, I bet I know where he is. He's probably in Gethsemane because he would go there often to pray. And that, of course, is where Judas and the Jews arrested him. Um, but anyway, that statement in John fourteen thirty one, where the Lord said, Arise, let us go hence, that tells Bible scholars that Christ spoke the contents of John 15 and John 16 to his men as they're walking from the upper room in the city of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is outside of the city to the east of the city. And the contents of those two chapters, John 15 and 16, are what we discussed for the past nine or ten lessons, I'm not sure how many, last year. We finished up John 16 on our last day of Bible study in May. So that's where we left off. Um, Do you remember how the Lord finished his instructional part? of the farewell discourse the farewell discourse began with comfort john 14 then two chapters of instruction chapters 15 and 16 and he ended it with prayer and that's an appropriate example for you and i to follow if when if we're ministering to somebody comfort them first then instruct them on what they should do you know from the word of god and then pray for them great example isn't it but you remember how he finished up the instructional part Look at the last verse of chapter 16. He said, these things, what things? Everything he had just said in the past three chapters. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. How many of you want peace? Oh, yes. In the world, here's the bad news. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Everybody smile. Come on. I want to see a smile on every face. Be of good cheer. Jesus said that's a command. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. No need to frown. If you're in Christ, you're an overcomer. You can have good cheer in your soul. Remember how the Lord had spoken about the world's hatred of him? And consequently, if the world hates him, who else is the world going to hate? His followers. And he had spoken at some length about that in chapters 15 and 16. And he was about to face the hatred of the world and its prince, Satan. He was about to face that hatred head on, wasn't he? At the cross. And yet he knew he would win the victory. And that's why he could fully and confidently encourage his men by saying, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Had he overcome the world yet? No. He would do it in a few hours on the cross. But from his perspective, because he sees the end from the beginning, he'd already overcome. He knew it was a certain thing. It was a victory. So he said, I have overcome the world. Okay, so that is what he said in one breath. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, you know, and I've come that you might have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. He said that in one breath. And then in a very smooth and easy transition, he took his eyes off of his men and he lifted them up to heaven and he began his prayer. It's really kind of easy to see the connection 
between his overcoming the world statement of John 16:33 and his high priestly prayer of John 17 because if you look through John 17 which I want you to do at least 3 times this week this next week I want you to read that prayer at least 3 times okay it's only 26 verses um but if you look through it maybe circle you'll find that the word world is in that prayer 19 times 19 times you'll find the word world he overcame the world and he prayed that his followers likewise would overcome the world and it was with absolute assurance that he knew his followers would overcome the world because our overcoming is in his overcoming for us isn't it you know what it says in first john 5 5 who is he or she i'll put that in that overcometh who's the one that overcometh are you an overcomer the one who is an overcomer of all the trials and tribulations and heartaches and everything else this world has to offer the overcomer of this world who is now a citizen in heaven is he that believes that jesus christ is the son of god do you believe that jesus christ is the son of god if so, truly, genuinely in your heart, you are an overcomer. And the words of Christ's prayer, as I mentioned earlier, were spoken out loud so that his disciples would hear them. They not only gave the men a, a, a lot of great additional insight into uh, their master's heart and into his soul and into his just... Um, that which motivated him but the prayer was also to further comfort them the prayer was spoken for their joy look at verse 13 jesus said to his father that he was speaking these things that means the contents of the prayer he was speaking those things in the world in other words while he was still present in the world why why was he speaking the words of the prayer so that they who's the they his men, his followers, might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's why he said the prayer out loud. So they would hear it, not only receive the comfort that it gives, but also joy. Now, do you think they had the comfort and the joy right away? No, but later on, when they remembered and reflected back, the Spirit helped them remember this prayer. Yes, on the other side of the resurrection, they were filled with great comfort and great joy. So no matter how bleak, their situation in the world might get remember he told them that they hate me they're going to hate you they're going to arrest you they're going to take you out of the synagogues they're going to persecute you and they're even going to martyr you no matter how bleak their situation would get they could have confidence in their ultimate victory because christ who conquered sin and death on their behalf also prayed for them that they would have victory and who else did he pray for that we would have victory again you and i His prayers are always heard and answered. Did you know that? Do you know what it says in 1 John 5, 14? This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Do you think Jesus Christ ever prayed anything that wasn't his father's will? No. Therefore, his father always heard his prayers. There was never a prayer Jesus prayed that was not answered. And I know this dogmatically because this is exactly what the Lord also said. Remember when he was um, 
standing outside of Lazarus's tomb, he said these words, Father, this was one of his very short prayers. He said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know that thou hearest me always. God always heard his son's prayer because his prayers were always prayed in the Father's will. And all of Jesus' prayers are answered. Get comfort in that, because look at what he prayed for you and I. That's great comfort. Now, today's lesson is our introduction. And this was the introduction to our introduction. (laughs) As we get into this unique holy ground prayer. It's what is known as the Lord's high priestly prayer. This would better be, well, the high priestly prayer is the best name of all. But we could more call this the Lord's Prayer than what we do call the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer of Matthew 6 is really the disciples' prayer. Because the Lord would never say, forgive me of my debts, would he, of my sins. That really was the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. But devout Christian people throughout the centuries have unanimously felt that what we have here in John 17 is a sampling of what Christ, even yet today, offers as our great high priest in heaven today. So we look at this prayer, we get an idea of what he is still praying for us today in heaven. Now, let's read it, okay? Let's read. John 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. We'll talk about that next week. He said, I've finished. Has he finished it yet? No, but in his eyes, it's like good is already finished. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee when? Before the world was, the eternal Son of God. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. By the way, I missed one back in verse 2 where he also said that um, we were given to the Lord. All of us are love gifts to the, to, from the Father to the Son. Have you ever thought of yourself as a love gift? We think of Christ as a gift to us, but we are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And how many times do you think he says that in this prayer? I'll give you a guess. Yes, very good guess. (laughs) I mean, if you've been with us for any time, you know the Lord is big on seven. Seven times he mentions that we are love gifts from the Father to him. All right, now where was I? Verse 7. Verse 7, now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. He's speaking of his men and what they know. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them. Is the Lord the intercessor for the unsaved world? 
the great high priest of the unsaved world? No. He's the intercessor for the believer, and that's what he says here. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. Love gift again. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those thou hast given me. Love gift. That they may be one as we are. It's praying for unity. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition. Who's that? Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. See, we're still left here. We didn't get taken out the minute we got saved, did we? We have a purpose. I pray not that, I, that thou should take us them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. I'm so glad the Lord prayed that for me. Aren't you? That they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. And for their their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Not one of us in this room who has not been saved through the words of the apostles, the written words of the apostles, because without the word there is no salvation, right? And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one. Notice how many times he prays for unity for the believers. Verse 23, And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now here's the big climax verse to the whole prayer. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Why? that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them." really deep. Can you see why we're going to be here for a while? Probably have a lot of questions in your mind as we read through it, but it is an amazing prayer, and there is no way we can ever plummet its depths, I'll tell you right up front, but we'll try. But what I want to do at the beginning here is address the whole tone of this prayer, the whole atmosphere of it. The prayer immediately strikes the believer with its atmosphere, doesn't it? like the holy ground kind of thing, take off your shoes. Time-wise, we know that this prayer was spoken 
as Jesus literally stood on the precipice of his death. And that fact alone gives it special significance. Don't you treasure the last words of someone you love? Yes, these are basically the last words to his followers, and they loved him. There's an atmosphere to this prayer that just gives you the feeling that it is holy ground and we should worship. And this whole tone is immediately communicated in the first verse by the gesture that precedes the prayer itself. What are we told? Look back at verse 1. These things spake Jesus and did what? Lifted up his eyes. There was nothing to see out there in that dark night sky but the stars and the moon. And if it was cloudy, it was just dark. This is in the middle of the night. So the Lord lifted up his eyes to the night sky, and something is communicated by that gesture. The Holy Spirit wouldn't just put it in there for fun. Everything that is in the scripture is for a purpose, right? The old Puritan named George Newton used to say that gestures and posture in prayer are not everything, but they are something. You know, we can pray in any posture, can't we? We can pray with our head lifted. We can pray with our head bowed. We can pray with our eyes open, our eyes closed. We can pray on our knees. We can pray prostrate on our stomachs. We can pray with our hands open. We can pray with our hands clasped, um, on and on and on. I pray a lot of times behind a wheel driving, and I don't dare close my eyes then. (laughs) But there's no specific posture in prayer or even in worship that has to be rigidly maintained. Posture in prayer will vary, but you know something that should never vary in prayer is respect and reverence, no matter what posture we're in. But in the fact that Christ did lift his eyes up to the heavens, we find a subtle indication of his sinlessness. Why? Well, because there's such an obvious contrast to sinful man. You know where we have a sinful, penitent man pictured for us? Remember that publican, that penitent publican in the temple next to the proud Pharisee? But that publican, what does it say about him? It says, this is Luke 18:13. he would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven. He had his head bowed, and what did he do? He smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The sinless Lord Jesus, you see, had the right, even in his humanity, because he was sinless, he had the right to look right into the face of God, to look up to heaven, didn't he? Now, another thing to notice on this occasion is the amazingly seamless transition that the Lord made as he lifted up his eyes to heaven. In one breath, he had been focused on his men, right? One minute he's looking at his men and he's addressing them. And in the very next breath, you know, it's just such a smooth transition, he is addressing God the Father with his eyes, you know, up to heaven. And he addresses both the men and God as if both were just equally as natural to him. Have you ever been in somebody's presence that does that? One minute they're talking to you, and the next minute they're talking to God? I mean, 
that kind of shocks you, doesn't it? I've only had that happen once or twice in my life, but but both were equally natural to him. The disciples in one moment heard him conclude the lengthiest section of teaching that we, you know, spent most of last year studying, and in the next minute, he's lifting up his eyes and he's saying, Father, the hour has come, without any introduction at all. Now, I want us to be clear about the difference between the Lord's prayers and our prayers. And you're not going to see this in in the English, but it's there in the Greek. Three times in this prayer, we hear the Lord say, I pray. First time is in verse 9, second time in verse 15, third time in verse 20, where the Lord says, I pray. Now, there are two major terms in the Greek that are used in the gospel accounts for making requests in prayer. One is used as a child makes a request to a parent, for example. May I please have um, another bowl of cereal? That it's used for children of parents or subjects to a king or a beggar holding out his hands for alms. That's one term that is used for prayer. And that is the word, for example, that we found in John 16, verses 23 and 24, when the Lord spoke to the apostles about their prayers. Because they came as children to a parent or as a beggar, you know, for alms, or as a subject to a king. So when it talks about our prayers, that's the term in Greek that is used. But the Lord Jesus never, ever, ever used that term to speak about his praying. That's interesting. I wish we could see that difference in in the English. When he spoke to God, you see, it was never as a subject to a king, never as a beggar asking for alms, never as a child to a parent. The other term that is used for making requests is found only in Scripture when there is a sovereign making a request or expressing his will to another sovereign, a king to a king, equal to equal. The term is, that term is consistently, consistently used with regard to Jesus Christ every time he lifts up his words to the Father in prayer. Isn't that interesting? It's a term that has more reference to expressing a desire, confidently knowing with full assurance that that request is going to be granted. So it's not like he's begging his father. He's saying, I pray, and I know with utter confidence my request is going to be granted. There's no contingency to it. There's no doubt that the request is going to be answered. In John 17, the Lord always used this second term when he said, I pray. So we have a prayer that is expressed on the level of one dignity to another dignity, one sovereign to another, equal to equal. It's a prayer of one looking full in the face of the other, lifting up his eyes and saying, I express my request. Look at verse 24. What does he say? Father, I will. It's a prayer that is the strong expression of his will, his determination. Now, we have a completely different atmosphere here outside of the Garden of Gethsemane than the prayers Jesus would soon pray where? Inside the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden, what is he going to do? He's going to cast himself down on his knees on the ground, sweat great drops of blood, and say, Father, 
If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, there in the garden, he is the submissive servant of Jehovah. There in the garden, he prays as the man God. But here in John 17, he prays as the God man. In the gospel, which stresses his deity. Which of the gospels stresses the Lord's deity? The one we're in, John. John stresses his deity. We find him saying, Father, I will. In Gethsemane, he says, Father, not my will, but thine. Interesting. John's gospel, the stresses Christ's deity, John's gospel does not record for us anything about the Lord's prayer time in Gethsemane. Did you know that? The other three gospels tell us about Gethsemane, but John's gospel doesn't. No, not even a reference to it. But the account of of the prayer in Gethsemane is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Yet John's is the only one of the four that does give us this high priestly prayer. The only place you're going to find the high priestly prayer is in John's gospel. And why is that? Well, because the Holy Spirit, you know, inspired each of the four gospel writers to emphasize a different aspect of Christ. Matthew emphasizes that he's king. Mark emphasizes his servanthood, you know, servant, servant of Jehovah. Luke emphasizes that he's the son of man. And John emphasizes that he's the son of God, God incarnate. Interesting, isn't it? Well, in John, there's no mention of the Gethsemane prayers. So, uh, as I said, Christ is seen there in his humanity. But there is this lengthy record of a prayer in which he just naturally lifts up his gaze to the Father and addresses him here. When he says, Father, the hour has come. He addresses him here even as the Gospel of John opened up. John 1.1. How does that begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was where? With God. Okay, what's that mean? The Word was face to face with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Two persons, the Word and God, but one God. The Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. We know the Word was Jesus Christ because verse 14... And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the beginning, when is that? Before time, (laughs) in the beginning, was the word and the word was God. The word had face-to-face communion with God as an equal with God because he was and is God. Wrap your mind around all that. And we find, you see, the exact same communication in John 17. So the whole tone that the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us is to show us that this is the kind of intercession that the Lord makes for you and I now, yet today. As he is again, where? Face to face with his Father, as he was in the beginning. Now, that I totally confused you with all that. Um, There are three easy distinctions for this prayer. I told you that way long ago in the beginning. Um, We find in verses 1 to 5, who does Jesus pray for? He prays for himself. And I'm going to talk next week about the significance of that. Okay? But first of all, he prays for himself. Then in verse 6, there's a transition to another subject. In verses 6 to 19, he prays for the apostolic ministry. 
and uh, their intimate eternal relationship with both him and his father. He prays for their unity over and over and over again, that they may be one. He prays for their joy. He prays for their protection, their mission, for their sanctification. And then he concludes his high priestly prayer, verses 20 to 26, by praying for all future believers, which includes you and I. And that fact alone should make us very excited about studying this prayer. Now, what is it that the Lord prays? Well, this is where the, those three sections actually come together. Sure, he prayed for himself, he prayed for his apostles, and he prayed for us. But the three sections come together, they're bound together with the same burden all the way through the whole 26 verses. And that burden is that God the Father would glorify him, Christ. The burden is that the Father would glorify him. In verse 1, Jesus is, and don't worry if you don't get all this, because now I'm just doing a general overview of the prayer, of what we're going to be getting into. But in verse 1, Jesus is praying because the hour has come for his divine being to be revealed. Father, glorify thy son. Now, no mere man would ever dare pray a prayer like that especially as we see it repeated in verse 5. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 5. He adds, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. What man could pray such a prayer? Give me the glory I had when I was with you before the world was even made, created. And yet at the same time, is it not true that this is a petition he makes because he is a man? He's still wrapped in the likeness of a man? Not yet in the full, the evident full God glory that he had before his incarnation. You see, his humanity, when Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who had glory with God, was the Word, was God, before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, when he became man, he put on the likeness of man, right? But that was an addition. His humanity was an addition. It was something assumed for a time, for a purpose. He appeared as a man. But my, oh my, that was not even the half of it. Like Queen of Sheba said to Solomon, (laughs) not even the half of it. He appeared as a man. But... uh, that wasn't even the half of it. Well, it was. Well, he's 100% man and 100% God. Don't ever get the idea that he's 50% man and 50% God. He's 100% man and 100% God. But this one who came was not just a man. He came to vocalize God. He came to communicate for God. He came to reveal God. But he himself is also the very revelation of God because he is God. The Word was made flesh. But that flesh was an addition to his essential being, which is God. And if you're having trouble, that's because it's just way higher than our finite minds can grasp. But he is the God-man. So he said, Father, glorify thy son. Isn't that what his mother Mary wanted way, way long ago when he performed his first miracle? Where was his first miracle? At a wedding in Cana, remember, she suggested, when they ran out of wine, she suggested to Jesus that he display himself. Show him who you really are, Jesus. <laughs> um, isn't that a typical mother? Show him what you got, kid. Uh, 
But even she had very little conception of what that would mean if he did display his full glory at that wedding. Um, And so how did he answer? Plus, it wasn't the hour, was it? How did he answer? He called her woman for one thing, but he said, my hour has not yet come, woman. (laughs) And he had used that answer every time any temptation arose for him to try to take matters into his own hands instead of being on the, you know, prescribed, eternal, divine time schedule. And uh, he, from the very beginning, first recorded words we have from him when he was only 12 years old, we know that from the very beginning, Jesus was very conscious of his primary purpose for coming into the world. Remember what he said to his parents when they found him in the temple? He said, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business. Even as a 12-year-old, he knew why he was here. And likewise, he was well conscious of the predetermined time for the termination of his earthly work, his death on the cross. So he began his high priestly prayer saying, Father, the hour is come. Now this is, Mercedes, the seventh and final time in John's gospel that the Lord mentions his momentous hour. If you ever think the Bible isn't inspired by God, just start counting sevens and you'll see that one thing alone. This is the last time he mentions that hour. At long last, the hour had arrived when the Lord God of glory himself would willingly be made sin for his people and he would bear in their place the full wrath of a holy sin hating God it was the hour when the dreadful old enemy serpent Satan would be permitted permitted to bruise the head I mean the heel excuse me the heel of the woman's seed prophecy that goes all the way back to where Genesis 3.15. If the hour of the cross had not taken place, you know what? Jesus would have absolutely no basis for anything that he requests in this entire John 17 prayer. He certainly would not be glorified by all of his attributes that were displayed on the cross and the Father's attributes that were displayed on the cross, such as his justice, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his love his forgiveness and everything else. And he would not be able to ask for eternal life for those who believed on him, would he? If he hadn't gone to the cross, could he pray for eternal life for anybody? No. He would not be glorified in his resurrection and his ascension. He couldn't pray anything that he prays in here if it had not been for the hour of the cross. And all of this leads then to his request for his men, his apostles. What does he pray for them? Well, in verse 11, look at verse 11. We find his first petition in verse 11 for his men, his apostles. And what is it? It is to keep them. But his prayer for his apostles began in verse 6. Interesting. He began to the transition in verse 6 to pray for his apostles, but his first petition for them isn't until verse 11. So what is going on in verses 6 to 10? Well, he's describing his apostles to his father. And it's hard to believe how he describes these men. Listen to what he says about the apostles. He says, they have kept my word. They have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. He says, they have known surely that I came out 
from thee. Did they? Did they understand all that? Uh, hadn't we read some of their interruptions? And, you know, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. Philip says, uh, what did Philip say? He asked a question. I can't remember what it was. Uh, Show me the Father, and it suffices us. And then there was Judas, not Iscariot, who said, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not to them? And then what had he just said about them? They're all going to scatter from him. And one of them, their leader, is even going to, bet- does this sound like the same guys? <laughs> That Jesus is describing to his father, he addresses them. This is what's so fantastic. He, uh, he, he describes them to his father without even a hint of their weaknesses. This is an amazing description of those men in all of their weaknesses and failures and, and flesh nature that he's describing them like this. Because This is good for us because you know what this tells us? This tells us that the Lord sees far more in his people than we see in ourselves. He sees the finished product. Yay! Because i got a long way to go. I'm so glad he sees the finished product, not what I am today. (laughs) And so we need to be encouraged by that. We should be encouraged by that. The least degree of genuine faith is evidently in his sight precious and and he can pray for such men and women that they be kept just a mustard seed of faith and he prays for us that will be kept if he prays for us to be kept guess what is there anything that can unkeep you nope nope it's his will and it will be done his men would not apostatize they would not be overwhelmed by temptation even when they were facing martyrdom they would be crushed by persecution I mean, it would come, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't unkeep them. They would, be, uh, they would not be disheartened in their service because of the evil one. He mentions that in verse 15, because he would keep them from the evil, which really means the evil one. And what else does he pray for them? Verse 17, he prays, sanctify them. What's that mean? Set them aside for thine own usage, Father. Don't we want to be kept? Don't you? Isn't that something that we all want? You know, how insecure we can feel sometimes. Oh, my husband doesn't love me like he should. Or my children don't appreciate me like they should. And my grandchildren just take advantage of me, you know. Oh, oh, woe is me. And we can feel so insecure and we long for even the sensation of security. That we are his and he is ours. And guess what? He is. Look at verse 10. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. That's security. He is our good shepherd. He is your security. Don't look for security in any person or in this world. He is our security. He has prayed for us to be kept and to be sanctified, and his prayers are always answered. Verse 20, he also prays for all those who will believe because of the words of the apostles. And what does he pray for all who would believe because of the words of the apostles, which includes us? Well, verse 21, that we may all be one, that none of us will be lost. There's only one who was ever lost, and that was Judas, and he was never real to begin with. Verse 22, what's he pray? Again, that we may be one. Why does he pray that all the people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, every whatever, would believe, uh, would be one? Um, the, the millions who believe on him. Why does he pray for this kind of unity and that we're kept? 
Why does he pray these things? Why does he pray for our preservation? Why does he pray for our unification? You want it? You want the answer? Verse 24. Here it is. That they may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. That is the crowning petition of the entire prayer. That believers of all the ages, ever since Adam and Eve, all believers would be kept, would be sanctified, set apart, may be unified. I don't care about all the denominations and all the splits and all the churches on every corner. We're all going to be unified. So that, why? So that one day we all together will be with him and we will together, unified, sanctified, glorified, behold his glory, his glorified body, full deity glory. That's what is the heart of the Savior. That's what he wants. It's for us to behold together, unified, glorified, his glory. You know, we don't see him now. And don't tell me if you do. You're taking too much Prozac or something. We can only imagine him. We can only imagine him. But you know what we imagine, unfortunately, is what we view from the Gospels. A man in a robe, right? Long white robe with sandals on his feet. He walks. He gets tired. He sleeps. He gets hungry. He's got a beard, a little bit long hair, you know. (laughs) Isn't that how we visualize Jesus when we talk about Jesus? Um, That's the image we see in our minds most of the time. But that humanity aspect of Christ is not the half of it. His humanity, as I said earlier, was just an addition. It was taken on in addition to. It was something for a purpose, but there was something previous to it, which goes back where? All the way back before the world began. And the climax petition of his high priestly prayer, verse 24, is that he wants us to one day Behold that glory of his that he had before the world began. And and the additional glory, that's called his pre-creation glory. But he wants us to see that glory in addition to the glory that the Father has given the Son since he finished his great work on the cross in his human but sinless body. One day, you and I are going to see what took place on the other side of those clouds. When he ascended up to his father in heaven, we lost sight of him. One day, we're going to see what took place on the other side of that cloud. I can't wait. Can you now think, don't always think of scripture in terms of us. Think of what this meant for him. Look at his heart in all of this. Can you imagine the the pleasure that Christ must have experienced on that one day at the end of the first century when just one of his followers, just one, saw him in his full resurrected glory, his pre-incarnate, pre-creation glory? Who was that one? the very one who was privileged to record this prayer. 
John. John, the aged apostle, was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and Christ appeared behind him and spoke. And when John turned at hearing those words, that voice, there was that glory that Jesus had spoken of in John's hearing years before in this very prayer when he said, Father, thou hast come glorify thy son. The very prayer that John himself was inspired to record. Now, when John turned and looked to see who, where that voice was coming from, what did John see? This is in Revelation 1. Did I say that? What did John see? Did he see a man in a robe and sandals with maybe Jewish features and, and, and a beard? Probably as Jesus had appeared to John and the other disciples in his post-resurrection appearances? Was that the Jesus he saw? Oh, no, not by a long shot. Here is how John described him. This is Revelation 1, verses 14 to 16. He says this is the exalted, pre-creation, glorified Christ. His head and his hairs were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. You picture Jesus like this? This is how he is today. Eyes as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass as they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? That's like his voice. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. No wonder John fell as though dead at his feet to behold that glory. You know, the Lord had waited all the hard and very difficult 33 years of his earthly life for the Father to return him to his glory. But think about this. He is still waiting for that moment. Jesus is still waiting 2,000 years later now. For that moment when he can display his glory to all believing people. Old Testament saints, church saints, tribulation saints, millennial kingdom saints. um, All the saints together are going to, he's waiting, still waiting for that moment when we sanctified and unified will behold him. And what pleasure for him there is going to be. When there is such awe in his people from all of the ages, those he loves so much that he died for them, when we all together in unity put our hands over our mouths, fall prostrate on our faces, are overcome with joy and pleasure, and shake our heads at the very sight of his absolute radiant glory. Have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't give up on you? I do. (laughs) I think just throwing the towel with me. I'll tell you why he doesn't give up on me and why he doesn't give up on you. It is so that one day together we will all experience what I just described. We are all going to behold his glory. He wills to be glorified in our sight. Therefore, He is going to be glorified in our sight. Let's pray.
Started off keeping you over, didn't I? Bad start, Kat. <laughs> Terry's not here. <laughs> Father, how we long, long for that day when we will be in experience as you already see us today. We will be unified, we will be sanctified, and we will be glorified because of the finished work and because of the intercessory work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And our faith is going to be turned to glorious sight. And we will see him as he is, and and we will see his unimaginable glory. Thank you, Jesus, for praying for us then and even still today. Thank you for the security that we have in this prayer, knowing that your prayers do not go unanswered. Therefore, we are kept. We are going to be delivered out of this evil into your holy and eternal presence. And in your presence, there is going to be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. No more needs, no more heartaches, no more temptations or sins, no more sadness, nothing, nothing at all but unmixed, undiluted glory, wonder, joy, love, absolute satisfaction, delight forevermore. How we long for that day. And Lord, if there is one who does not know for sure that she is a born-again child of the living God by her faith in Jesus Christ, oh, how I pray she would just drop on her knees sometime today and ask you to save her. Like that penitent publican, beat her breast and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we know that you will save her. Lord, we love you. Go with each woman. Bring us all back together again next week, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.